Thank you to The Jordan Harbinger Show for sponsoring this week's episode. It's a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows. We're enjoying it, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What we're looking for now is to ensure that we see our voices, our votes, and our leadership in our American democracy. And so we welcome Black women who want to harness their political power to the political home for Black women to change the face of leadership. We recognize there's never been a Black woman serving as a governor in our country. We've only had 16 Black women serve in statewide executive offices in this country. Six are currently serving. We should take the lessons learned over the last six years of record gains and build a strategic plan for the next 10 years. So by 2030, what does American democracy look like? Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest today is Glinda Carr, co-founder and president of Higher Heights for America. Ten years ago, she and Kimberly Peeler Allen, the other co-founder, discussed how they often found themselves in rooms that were mostly white, mostly male, and oftentimes were asked, where can we find more women of color like you? They brainstormed about what type of organizations they would like to belong to, and that led to the foundation of what would eventually be the political home of black women. We discussed the importance of being continually engaged in our democracy beyond election day, the immense political power of black women, and the benefits of normalizing the election of black women to higher public office. We start our conversation about the work of Higher Heights. Yep. So Higher Heights for America is an organization that has sister organizations that in totality is the political home for black women's political leadership, a place for black women to be informed, engage and to take action. We're a political lifestyle brand. Black women continue to be the architects of our democracy since the suffrage movement to the civil rights movement to the last four years. Black women continue to be the building blocks to a winning coalition. And what we're looking for now is to ensure that we see our voices, our votes, and our leadership in our American democracy. And so we welcome Black women who want to harness their political power to the political home for Black women to change the face of leadership. So when you think about the political possibilities for Black women, right now, Black women are underrepresented by a huge margin. Some of the statistics that you mentioned on your website, they're just staggering. It's like, if you don't look at the numbers, you don't realize how unequal access to power is in many ways. So what are the political possibilities for Black women in general, and how should we think about it? I'm glad you brought that up. So 10 years ago, one of the things we thought was important was to root our work in data. And so we partner with the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers as our research partner. And what you find is that Black women are underrepresented and underserved in our American democracy. In fact, if you look at the numbers, right, people talk about Black women being this political powerhouse, which we absolutely are. Uh, and we've seen incremental gains in Black women running, winning, and leading. And we celebrate that. But Black women lead by the numbers. 
We currently have eight Black women serving in mayors of top 100 cities. In 2014, there were just two. So we've seen some incremental gains. Each year for the last six years, we've seen incremental gains in the number of Black women serving in Congress. We have the largest number of Black women serving in the United States House of Representatives, including 26 at this moment. But there's zero Black women in the U.S. Senate. And so as we celebrate all of the gains in 2020, including the ascension of Kamala Harris to the vice presidency, we were left with a U.S. Senate with no Black women. And in fact, there's only been two Black women who have ever served in the United States Senate. Carol Mosley Braun in 1992, if you recall, that was coined the year of women, a record number of women ran and a record number of women won in the U.S. Senate. It took 24 years later to elect Kamala Harris as the second black woman to the United States Senate. We certainly are not waiting 20 more years to elect the next black woman uh, to the U.S. Senate. And so there's work to be done. We recognize there's never been a black woman serving as a governor in our country. We've only had 16 black women serve in statewide executive offices in this country. Six are currently serving. We should take the lessons learned over the last six years of record gains and build a strategic plan for the next 10 years. So by 2030, what does American democracy look like? And we certainly believe that there are more Black women to run, win, and serve as mayors. And we certainly believe that it's not just breaking the barriers of the first Black woman to be elected governor, but that we are having a conversation in 2030 about Black women serving as governors in the Deep South, in the Midwest, in the Northeast. And finally, that certainly there is an opportunity to run a successful campaign for a vice president to ascend to be the first woman of color and black woman as the president of the United States. May that be in the next four years or in the next eight years. I love it. I love your ambition and I love that you are playing the long game. One of the things that you write about is that we need to normalize black women's leadership and see black women on every ballot. Explain why that's important and how do we get there? Yeah, when you normalize Black women's leadership, it doesn't become this anomaly. So oftentimes, I think when average Americans talk about diversity in our representation, they're just assuming that representation is coming from districts and communities where our elected leaders are representing people who come from similar backgrounds, right? And so when we talk about candidates of color, if we broaden the possibilities of where they can run, win, and lead, we've already seen representation that has been impactful, but may not be in a district that people would assume that person or candidate would run for. For example, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood from Illinois, she represents a district that is just 3% Black, right? It is a majority white district. Here is the youngest Black woman to be elected to Congress. She was 34 years old when elected. And her leadership, regardless that she was a millennial, that she was a Black woman, that she knew that she had something unique to bring to that district, and that she was able to build a coalition of voters, African-American, voters of color, women, white men, to believe in her candidacy. And she's proven in her freshman term that she's an impactful leader. We have examples of that across the country. 
And so if you believe in the possibilities of black women's leadership, if a white man has represented me where I've lived most of my life, certainly we should have an America that believes that they see a qualified candidate who's a black woman who's ready to, to lead. And when you do that, we will see what people would consider unlikely places for black women to lead. I'm originally from the Northeast. There is a black woman, Danielle Allen, exploring a candidacy for governor of Massachusetts. Just this June, we saw a state senator in South Carolina, Mia McLeod, be the first black woman to ever run for governor in that state. And is certainly looking to break barriers of becoming a governor in 2022. Wow, that's awesome. Danielle Allen is one of the most impressive people I have ever encountered. She is so smart. I'm very encouraged to hear that she's thinking about running for governor. So that's exciting. And I think what's exciting about that is it's also when women run for office and particularly women of color and black women, they come from a variety of different like lived experiences and backgrounds. So Danielle's an academic. I always use an example of the 2018 election. We elected five black women that year. We elected a teacher who was a teacher of the year, Johanna Hayes. We elected Lauren Underwood, a nurse. We elected a state legislator and a Somalian refugee, Ilhan Omar. We elected uh, a city council member, Ayanna Presley. And we elected an activist who lost her son to a racially motivated gun violence. They hit the ground running at a time that their experience and background allowed them to be uniquely qualified to talk about leading a country during a global pandemic with a increased highlight around gun violence and police brutality and a racially divisive time and a discussion around immigration. And I think those are the types of leadership traits that women and women of color and black women bring to the table. Yeah. One of the things that you wrote about is that women of color and especially black women are considered to be outsiders, right? That is the outsider status. You are not a white man <laughs> and you are not part of the system. And so if you want change, then really you should be electing somebody who embodies that very change and has a lived experience of being on the outside. I think that's really important. So in terms of the work that Higher Heights does, how do you support these candidates? What's the work that you do? Our work uh, as it relates to helping to create the environment for black women to run, win and lead is exactly that. We have to shape and reshape the narrative about who elected leaders are and where they come from. What we're doing is having a conversations about um, black women's leadership and what does that mean to build a reflective democracy? We host trainings for women who are thinking about running for office, which includes connecting black women to other resources from our partnering organizations so that they can prepare and develop a plan and a blueprint if they are on the road to be in an elected office. But frankly, when we talk about being the political home for black women, it is also creating that network and giving the tools to say, how do I support and invest in black women? Our political action committee endorses black women running for federal office, statewide executive office and mayors of top 100 cities. And that endorsement comes with the ability to amplify that candidacy to draw attention and build momentum for that candidacy. Our members support our political action committee so that we can financially invest in our candidates. And finally, our goal is to activate our members in a broader community 
helping to elect black women by making phone calls, by texting voters, by amplifying on their social media. We provide opportunities for our network across the country to activate around candidates that inspire them. So um, I think there is this perception that black women voters really hold the key to winning the Democratic ticket. Is that something that is widely understood within the black community? Like, what is the power of black women voters and how do people think about that on the ground? Are they totally motivated to be like, okay, I know that my vote matters here the most? Certainly over the last couple of election cycles, we've seen a recognition of black women being the building blocks to a winning coalition for candidates in elections, both locally, regionally and nationally. There have been major touchpoint moments that have just demonstrated that. So in 2017, we woke up the day after the Alabama Senate race and saw coverage and social media proclaim thank black women for saving this democracy. So we certainly saw in 2008 and 2012 with the election of Barack Obama that black women overperformed at that voting booth. And what we also proved is black women are the best return on our voting investment, right? That black women don't only prepare themselves to be an informed voter, but they also organize their house, their block, their church, their sorority, and their union. We've seen those additional touch points where black women in Alabama overwhelmingly performed for the Democratic uh, nominee and delivered a decisive win. And then 2020, we saw Black women organizing during the presidential election. And then they went into overdrive once Vice President Biden announced Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. Our research from 2020 showed that women, we, we polled women, white women, women of color and Black women, that there was a strong desire for them to see a vice president that was from a new generation of leaders, that someone that could unite the country and that they were excited about making history. And they believed that a black woman was uniquely positioned to do that. And so certainly when Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris, you saw black women go into overdrive. They opened their pocketbooks and sent you know, grassroots dollars. You saw an uptick of people writing $19.08 um, $19.13, showing Black women's excitement about Kamala Harris being a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And that was an ode to the year that her sorority was founded. And we saw Black women during a global pandemic organizing their networks virtually and in person to help make history in 2020. And so I certainly think there's been an awakening of America about the power of Black women. But I've always said that you can't harness power you don't know you have. And an average American doesn't think their vote matters. And Black women have proven that their vote matters. And the work ahead is now demanding our return on our voting investment. That is in the form of policies that directly impact Black women, our families, and our communities. And we are certainly claiming seats at decision-making tables. I definitely agree. You need to demand that. Before we continue our conversation with Glinda Carr, I want to talk up The Jordan Harbinger Show. It's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content. Each episode features a conversation with a different, fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone, I really mean that. 
In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds both useful and creepy at the same time. And in another, he speaks to an award-winning journalist about the current state of cyber warfare and how prepared we are for the next catastrophic cyber attack. His goal is to make you a better informed, more critical thinker, so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening instead of letting someone else tell you what to think. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And so I have a bunch of questions now. Let's start maybe with how the election of Kamala Harris as vice president has changed your organizing on the ground. I mean, you just mentioned that so many more people opened their pocketbooks and they went into overdrive. But going forward, what do you expect to evolve out of this for black women? I think you're going to see a continued record number of black women running for office from local level to national level, which means in every election cycle, there are going to be opportunities to organize black women from the voting booth to elected office. And so we find ourselves in 2021, which the broader world calls an off election year, but it is a year where you have states that are holding their state elections like Virginia. We see black women running as mayors across this country. So in 2017, there was a record number of black women who ran and won for mayor. And so we're in that second wave of the year of the mayor. In the first stop this last April, we elected Tashura Jones as the mayor of St. Louis. Uh, there are black women running in Detroit. Uh, the acting mayor of Boston is a black woman who is running for a full term as well as another black woman on that ballot. And so certainly we see in 2021, black women running across this country. And 2022 is shaping up, right? We have two black women running for U.S. Senate in a highly competitive, highly talked about uh, U.S. Senate seat in North Carolina. Um, Congresswoman Val Demings for U.S. Senate in Florida. And there are black women across this country who are in exploratory committees determining how they can run for governor, U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. So it's an exciting time. And when you have this amount of energy and momentum, it is how you actually continue to build for higher heights for us to build our organization and build our membership um, because there's excitement around the possibilities. It is very exciting. I have a question about voter suppression because, in fact, I think in part because of the success of organizing among people of color of all kinds, you know, whether they're black or Asians or Hispanic in this last 2020 election, that we are seeing these aggressive campaigns to roll back voting rights and voter suppression overwhelmingly disenfranchises black women. Given this current climate, what is the most urgent work that you're doing right now? Voter suppression is a conversation we continue to need to have. And I certainly think 2020 exposed how people are using voter restrictions to silence a particular set of voters because of their growing power. In a time where our country should be expanding and creating innovations around voting rights, we are a country 
that is shrinking and rolling back voting rights. And we should be outraged as an entire an American electorate that this should be a conversation that crosses political ideology, race, social economic background and where we live. And in fact, it is actually the issue that divides us. If we want a truly reflective democracy that we actually all can believe in, we should be okay with battling it out on the quote unquote campaign trail and that the best man, best woman, best person wins and that the voters each had a voice and that our vote was that voice in our democracy. And so it certainly saddens me that we are actually at the point where voting has become the political football and that instead of running proud races, that we're finding ways to legislate, not counting every vote. So I feel like this is not being widely appreciated. Like, obviously, you appreciate it, and so do I, that this is a real crisis of our democracy. But if you could speak to everyone, if you could say one thing about this uh, huge effort to roll back voting rights, what would you say so that people really like wake up and pressure their elected representatives to vote for H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act so you know we can mitigate the worst of what has already been passed? We have to get involved. Um, democracy doesn't begin in, in on election day. And in fact, it begins the day after the election. And so we as Americans have to be 365 day participants in our democracy. And so it certainly is important that we organize ourselves and we vote, but we also have to be governing partners for our elected officials in this important time where we're seeing the dismantling of our democracy, our elected leaders need to hear from us. I spent six years working as a chief of staff of a New York state legislator. The squeaky wheel in this democracy gets the oil. And it's what I saw as a, a staff member that when our constituents called us, when our constituents emailed us, when our constituents faxed us, because it was back in the fax days, and certainly in the 21st century, when they tweet at us, when they come to our elected officials town halls, that when we go to our state capitals and our capital in Washington and we lobby, that our elected leaders listen and that we have to put that pressure and that consistent pressure on those and hold them accountable. But more importantly, we have to create the environment for our champions to push innovation in our public policymaking and our budget priorities decisions. Yes, here, here. So since you have founded Higher Heights for America. How has the public perception changed about who's electable? When we first started, there were articles. Now, I think you would agree, every day I can listen to a podcast, I can read an article, I can read an essay, I can turn on my local TV, our you know cable TV, our national TV, and hear about Black women. And more importantly, putting names and faces to black women who are elected or who are activists 25 years ago, would we have looked forward and know that during COVID-19, we would be talking about the black women mayors that were leading the nation's largest cities through a global pandemic. Four years ago, would we have recognized that during a historic time in our uh, nation with two impeachment hearings of a sitting president, that you would have two House 
impeachment managers that were black women, that the country would be talking about Congresswoman Val Demings, a former police chief and now congressional member walking the impeachment papers to the United States Senate. And finally, certainly many of us who follow politics knew who Maxine Waters is and the impact she's had on her public service career, but that she would become Auntie Maxine, the woman that reclaimed her time. And so I think that we've normalized and creating the environment where around kitchen tables across this country, we are talking about the bold leaders that are running and leading in this country and they're black women. I love it. You guys are so successful. I think you really have changed the conversation and also changed the face of politics. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to advance a thriving democracy, you know, and connect the dots between public policy, uh, politics and democracy? We each have a role to play. Certainly all of us don't need to run for office, but I certainly think there are ways that we can easily, like you're sitting to go like, I really want to be more engaged. Higher Heights political home is open to everyone. And so we welcome you to be part of our work and our mission and to join and be in community and to be provided with training and tools and ways to use your voice and your leadership and your power. But outside of being part of organizations, five simple things outside of running for office, I'm purposely taking that off the plate, right? <laughs> One, find a candidate that inspires you and donate your time, talent, and treasures. If you've never donated to a candidate, consider what I call making that first contribution, or more importantly, making a political budget, right? We have budgets for everything. We budgets of how we're supporting our local organizations, how we're tithing to our religious institutions, how we're spending our uh, money to go shopping. Determine that this year or next year that you're going to invest, say, $100 or $1,000 to support a candidate and create a way to do that. Maybe monthly contributions. You can do that same thing for an organization that you're inspired by. Volunteer. Like I said, with COVID-19, we've proven that you can volunteer. Literally, I've volunteered sitting on my couch. So volunteer to make and deliver a democracy that you can believe in. Connect and talk to your elected leaders. I will tell you my time in the state legislature and the work that we do talking to Black women elected across this country. And as you are aware, most of the legislation that is passed is tied to an experience of an everyday citizen. And so if you have an innovation or an approach to a policy, be bold and connect with your local leaders to talk through that because that idea can turn into a policy. And finally, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So it could be you advocating, writing letters, attending town halls, protesting and demonstrating. So it is each one of us finding our role and our place and knowing that collectively we all can help to move this country to higher heights. I love it. Those are all good suggestions. So here is my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? There's a quote from the late Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, and it's on my wall in my home office. And it's, I have faith in America. And I can certainly say that over the last four years, over the last year and a couple of months since we sheltered in place in quarantine, that I struggled with that quote. And I put it on the wall this past fall 
because I needed something to guide me. And it reminded me that this woman said this between 1968 and 1972. She was fighting the good fight for women's rights and for civil rights and for equal rights. And for her to still have faith in America, that is resolved that we can build beyond this moment. And so I know that moving forward, that my faith may waver back and forth in this democracy. But the work ahead is to ensure that we have a diverse democracy, particularly as it relates to our elected representation. When you have diverse decision-making tables, they make better decisions. And that's the work ahead. We are accelerating our work to ensure that Black women's voices are heard at those tables. And so what I'm excited about the possibilities of electing the first woman, woman of color and black woman as president. I'm excited about electing governors from all across this country. And I'm certainly excited about having not just one U.S. Senator that's a black woman, that we have black women senators with an S. And more importantly, that I continue to look forward to organizing, ensuring that all black women across this country are able and to see themselves in decision-making halls across this country and that they believe in the spirit of Shirley Chisholm that their voices, votes, and leadership matter. That is an exciting vision. Thank you very much for your work and thank you for being on Future Hindsight. Thanks for having me. It was great talking. Until this conversation, I didn't realize that only two black women have ever served in the U.S. Senate and that 24 years passed in between them. As we've discovered over and over on this podcast, a diversity of perspectives leads to better decision making. It's definitely high time we elect more black women to the Senate and to executive offices, which is to say mayors and governors. What's exciting is that more and more organizations like Higher Heights are making a concerted effort to achieve this goal. I also appreciate the advice on connecting with your local leaders. Write letters, attend town halls. Your idea to improve your community could inspire a public policy. I know that some of you are dedicated listeners of this podcast, and I want to know what you've done to become more engaged in your community. Drop us a line at hello at futurehindsight.com or tweet to me at Mila Atmos and let us know. The first 10 responses will get a gift card for a latte at Starbucks. Next week, our guest is Brett McSweeney, president of Eleanor's Legacy, the only statewide organization in New York focused on recruiting, training, and funding pro-choice Democratic women candidates at the state and local level. We discuss the critical impact of local and state elections on our daily lives and the value of electing more women to represent us. There are so many more Democratic women in state and local office in the year 2021. I'm proud to report New York State ranks 16th in the nation for women serving in our state legislature. Women now comprise about 34% of our state legislature. When Eleanor's legacy began, New York State ranked 29th in the nation with about 21% of our state legislature comprised of women. Obviously, there's 15 more spots for us to climb. So we still have some work to do, but we're really proud that we've reached that tipping point. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Zach Travis. 
Listen to us every week on Apple Podcasts, FutureHindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.